Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. The Biden administration makes a complete turnaround in its border security policy. Will they now begin construction on the Trump-era border wall? Former President Trump missing in court today for his business fraud case and his legal team signaling a move that could delay the trial for weeks or months. Could the historical ousting of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy change the way Congress operates? Some want a consequential rules change. One of the deadliest strikes by Russia, prompting the White House to urge more support for Ukraine. What's next as a potential House Speaker raises questions? And hand grenade fragments found at the site of the plane crash that reportedly killed the Wagner mercenary chief. Find out what it could mean. President Biden is changing course on the border wall. He previously said there wouldn't be a single foot built under his watch. Now, construction on the Trump-era project is set to soon begin. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. In the midst of a major surge of illegal immigrants, the Biden administration says it's planning to resume construction on the Trump-era border wall. The plans are to build the wall in Starr County in South Texas, a hotspot for illegal immigration. This decision to resume construction comes as the Border Patrol encountered more than 227,000 people crossing the southwest border in just the month of September. In a Thursday notice on the Federal Register, Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas said there's an immediate need to construct physical barriers to prevent unlawful entries into the United States. However, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre gave a different reason for resuming construction on the border wall. She noted that there are still funds from the Trump administration that are to be used specifically for a border barrier, and the deadline to use them is approaching. Uh, this is a law that we are complying with. Uh, we, have, we have asked Congress multiple times to reappropriate this. Uh, this is not the way that we believe is going to be effective here. And when President Biden on Thursday was asked if walls work, he said no. Former President Trump said this on Truth Social. Will Joe Biden apologize to me and America for taking so long to get moving and allowing our country to be flooded with 15 million illegal immigrants from places unknown? I await his apology. I spoke with Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Biden doesn't plan on stopping his catch and release policies at the southwest border. So at least erecting barriers gives the illusion that the president is doing something. Arthur explained that there are several things in play here. And I think the political pressure coming from uh, northern Democratic officials is a whole lot uh, stronger in the administration's decision in this regard than any demands being made by agents on the southwest border. And he added this about the area where the border wall is set to be built in South Texas. So this is a heavily trafficked area. It's also a known drug trafficking area. The drugs hopefully are uh, at least part of the consideration uh, for why the Biden administration is doing this. Uh, you know, we've seen two consecutive years of new highs for fentanyl overdose deaths and deaths on other uh, synthetic opioids. Uh, so, and it's important to remember that back in 2007, then Senator Joe Biden talked about how important fencing was to stop the flow of drugs into the United States. Now, without a set start date for construction, many are wondering when it will begin and how much of the border wall will be built. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
the Biden administration is taking other action on the border as well. It's resuming deportations to Venezuela, and other top U.S. officials are visiting Mexico today to meet with their counterparts. The officials include Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The two-day trip will focus on fentanyl and arms trafficking, as well as the increasing number of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Blinken is also scheduled to discuss migration with the foreign ministers of Colombia and Panama. Former President Trump wasn't in the courtroom for day four of the New York financial fraud trial. We turn now to NTD's Arlene Richards, who's been following the case. Arlene, there has been some excitement for the past three days in the courtroom. What was the overall mood today? Tiffany, I'd have to say that the mood was a lot quieter than it's been for the last three days. And as you know, former President Trump was not present. But Attorney General Letitia James was present throughout the day, and it seemed that her assistant was taking notes. Now, there was some back and forth between the attorneys and the judge on certain issues. And I think one of the more uh, interesting issues was that the defense said they are going to ask for a stay. That means they're going to ask that the trial be paused while they wait for the appellate decision on their appeal. And I don't know whether you know or not, but they appealed this judge's decision. Uh, he, he ruled a couple weeks ago that Trump actually was fraudulent in the way that he evaluated his assets. He said that he inflated the assets uh, in, in intending to defraud. So this uh, decision that the judge made is now on appeal, and they're going to ask the appellate court to stay this trial. So it could be another uh, weeks or months before this trial continues if that uh, request is granted. And now, Arlene, the state's first witness, Donald Bender, has returned to the stand. He's been on the stand since Monday afternoon. Is he a particularly important witness for the state? I would say he's pretty important because he's the certified public accountant who reviewed several financial statements on behalf of the Trump organization over a period of years. And he would have been responsible for finalizing and reviewing those statements to confirm that they were accurate and complete. And also what came out later on uh, from the defense cross-examination is that he has been an advisor for the Trump organization as well as the Trump family for several years, at least uh, 30 years, uh, about several of their entities and several business matters. And on that note, Bender has said he relied on the asset valuations provided by the Trump organization. Were there any questions about whether or not Bender should have been responsible for making necessary corrections? Yes, he has testified repeatedly and maintained that the Trump organization was solely responsible for all of the valuations that were contained in the financial statements. And this is actually very important to this case, right? But he was responsible for actually reviewing and confirming and, and advising them on whether all of the entries they put into the financial statement were correct. And there are certain accounting principles and accounting laws that he must abide by, which he admitted to. But he did say that he didn't see any obvious errors at the time that he was reviewing the statements and he said that if he had been aware of it he would have let them know about it. I think he referred to one or two instances where he did make some changes and he said that they complied at those times but in this case he's saying that he didn't see anything that needed to be changed. And Arlene Trump's former controller Jeffrey McConney also took the stand today. What was his involvement in this case? 
That's right, Tiffany. McConney was responsible for actually calculating the valuations that were in the financial statements, and he provided that information to Bender. He also would have been responsible for providing the documentation to support his calculations, and that included appraisals. Now, Bender had testified that McConney never provided him with appraisals that he needed, even though he had asked for them. When McConney was on the stand, he didn't get asked that question. He wasn't actually asked whether or not he provided Bender with appraisal. So they're, they're, that question will probably be asked later on uh, tomorrow uh, when he comes back on the stand. Tiffany? Arlene, thank you for that report. Meanwhile, Trump is asking a judge to throw out another case against him. His attorneys today filed a motion for dismissal of the election interference case in D.C., saying the former president is, quote, absolutely immune from prosecution. They also said the actions Trump was charged with are, quote, at the heart of his official responsibilities as president. And in Trump's classified documents trial, his lawyers are requesting the trial is postponed until after next year's election. They say they haven't received all the materials needed to prepare his defense. Trump's lawyers are urging Judge Eileen Cannon to push the trial back until at least mid-November 2024. They say there have been delays in obtaining and reviewing the classified records referenced in the indictment. The presidential election is set for November 5th, 2024. Trump currently leads the GOP field by a large margin. Prosecutors suggested last week that the Trump team's request was unreasonable. They said some of the delays were beyond their control. The DOJ says it has turned over most of the classified evidence to the defense. Back to D.C. as the House now searches for its next speaker. Some are insisting that rule changes come along with it. NTD's Melina Weiskup has updates from the Capitol. Melina, this entire situation came about because of one rule, that any one member of Congress can file a motion to vacate. Now some want to revert back to the old order of business to avoid another ouster. Tell us more. So remember that motion to vacate rule was only reinstated during this Congress. Now some want to revert and get rid of that motion to vacate rule, saying that they don't want to see the ousting happen over and over again. Now there are some Republicans who do want to keep this in place, arguing that the motion to vacate is the only way they can hold the speaker accountable. But now there's a growing list of moderate Republicans who want to get rid of this rule. Some even saying that they're not willing to support any candidate for speaker unless that rule is changed. While others do want to see change, they're not entirely sure over specifically what they want that change to be, such as what Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene told me just earlier. Take a look. Motion to vacate is a tool to hold a speaker accountable, uh, but we don't want to continue going forward in a situation where they can just, anyone can motion to vacate at any time uh, for any reason. And Congressman Matt Gates did have some interesting comments to say on this front, writing on X that he'd basically give all of his Republican colleagues whatever they want on the motion to vacate in exchange for some proposals made by a Democrat Congressman, Ro Khanna. These are policies such as banning stock trading and other issues. Here's what Congressman Ro Khanna told me about all this. I believe that we need to ban lobbyists and PAC money we need to ban members from trading stock. We need to ban members from becoming lobbyists. And I was encouraged that Representative Gates agrees with that. 
And these are the reforms that should be part of the conversation, whoever the new speaker is. As for that big question of who will become the next speaker, of course, we know those big names who are in the race, Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise. Now we're hearing some news of former President Trump. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene told me that she spoke with the former president one on one in a phone conversation, and he said he was open to it. But ultimately, we'll get more insight into this next week when the Republicans meet for their candidate forum on Tuesday and ultimately that vote on Wednesday. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. The White House calls for more support for Ukraine amid a deadly Russian airstrike. But the future of Ukraine aid has become more uncertain as the House seeks a new speaker. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. The White House says the U.S. has to continue supporting Ukraine. That says a Russian missile strike killed at least 51 people in eastern Ukraine on Thursday. Ukrainian officials say it's one of the deadliest attacks against civilians since the war began. We have to be, continue to support the people of Ukraine because this is the horrifying nature that they live in every day. The White House said earlier this week that it will soon announce another aid package for Ukraine. But over in Congress, GOP lawmakers are growing increasingly skeptical about sending more taxpayer money. And Congressman Jim Jordan, one of the leading candidates now vying for the speaker's gavel, said on Thursday that he needed answers on two fundamental questions. What is the goal? What is the objective? Second, how is the money being spent? How, how can we account for that? The, I think the American people are entitled to know the answer to do, those two questions before we continue to send their hard-earned money to uh, protect Ukraine's border when we have what's happening on our border. Congressman Jordan has signaled that if elected as speaker, he would not support another aid package for Ukraine. And Congress has already left out any additional funding for Ukraine in this latest short-term spending bill. But President Biden says he will soon give a major speech to stress the need to support Ukraine. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. What went on behind the August 23rd plane crash that killed Wagner mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin? Russian President Vladimir Putin said hand grenade fragments were found in the bodies of the victims. He said the probe was still ongoing without coming to conclusions. But his statement appears to suggest a grenade explosion may have contributed to the plane crash. The U.S. says it believes the plane was brought down by an intentional explosion. The Kremlin calls this an absolute lie. Brazil offered to help with the investigation, but the Kremlin rejected its offer. Russia is now the only one probing the cause of the crash. Prigozhin and two of his top lieutenants were among 10 people killed in the crash. Prigozhin had staged a short rebellion against Putin before changing his mind on June the 24th. Over in the Middle East, the U.S. military today shot down an armed Turkish drone that was operating near its troops in Syria. The incident comes at a delicate moment for U.S.-Turkish relations. This is the first time the U.S. has brought down an aircraft of NATO ally Turkey. Two U.S. officials speaking on the condition of anonymity said the U.S. called Turkish military officials multiple times to warn them the drone was operating close to U.S. ground forces. Afterwards, a U.S. F-16 fighter jet shot down the Turkish drone, which was believed to be armed. A Turkish defense official said the drone did not belong to the Turkish armed forces, but didn't say whose property it was. Turkey carried out strikes in Syria against Kurdish militant targets after a bomb attack in the Turkish capital last weekend. U.S. support for Kurdish forces in northern Syria has long caused tensions with Turkey. 
Coming up, President Biden has a nominee that's turning heads. An old associate of Hunter Biden, he could become the head of an agency that targets government corruption. Two high-profile funerals, one for the late Senator Dianne Feinstein and another for a slain Los Angeles sheriff's deputy. And what impact is the ongoing auto worker strike having and could it come to an end anytime soon? More in a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. A Hunter Biden associate is nominated for a key prosecutorial position. The president announced Hampton Dellinger as his pick for the head of the Office of Special Counsel. Dellinger was part of a legal firm Hunter Biden reached out to in 2014 to help Ukrainian energy company Burisma Holdings. Emails from Hunter Biden's laptop show the two had dinner together in March of that year. The younger Biden was on the board of Burisma between 2014 and 2019. Whether or not Dellinger performed any legal services for the company is unknown. Dellinger worked in the U.S. Department of Justice until June. The Office of Special Counsel works to end government corruption and protects government employees and whistleblowers. A mournful day in California. Several high-profile Democrats today flying out to San Francisco to honor the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. She died last week at the age of 90. The funeral service was held behind closed doors at the San Francisco City Hall for security reasons. Those in attendance included Vice President Kamala Harris, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. President Biden delivered a recorded statement. Feinstein was elected as mayor of San Francisco in 1978, and she later served in the U.S. Senate for over 30 years. She had long pushed Washington to establish closer ties with communist China. The Senate was in recess today for Feinstein's funeral. One Los Angeles County deputy is being remembered today after he was ambushed and killed. NTD's Christina Corona has more from downtown Los Angeles. We're here in Los Angeles where funeral services are being held for L.A. County Sheriff Deputy killed in the line of duty on September 16th, 30-year-old Ryan Klinkenbrumer. Klinkenbrumer tragically lost his life outside the Palmdale Sheriff's Station last month where he was fatally shot by a gunman who approached his vehicle and opened fire, ending the career of the dedicated eight-year veteran of the Sheriff's Department. Funeral services were held at 9.30 a.m. at the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels Tuesday. Numerous law enforcement agencies and personnel, along with friends and family, offered their heartfelt words and shared their condolences as a way to pay their respects to Klinkenbrumer. His actions were smooth and deliberate. He treated everyone he encountered fairly no matter what the situation was while being known as one of the hardest working deputies at the Palmdale station. Clink was one of the first people I'd call whenever I got stuck or needed guidance on a call, and he was always there for me. He was a role model to me as a young deputy and also as a person because of how he carried himself out. Clinkenbrumer was a third-generation deputy who was only recently engaged to be married. Today we bid farewell to our firstborn son, Ryan, a brother, a friend, a grandson, a partner, and a fiancé to Brittany. 
We're not saying goodbye, Ryan, but we're saying thank you. Like every little girl, I dreamed about meeting the perfect guy, getting married and starting a family. Unfortunately, I won't be able to check all those boxes off, but I'm so grateful I was able to meet the perfect guy. I'm not supposed to be up here talking to you all. I should be up here with Ryan holding hands as we prepare to say our vows. I don't know how I'm going to get by without you here, but I promise I'll be strong for you. I love you with my whole heart and I miss you more than anybody will know. I'm heartbroken that our future got cut short. I know you would have been an amazing husband and father. Thousands were in attendance at the services today, including law enforcement and personnel from local, state, and federal agencies. A private ceremony was held after the mass. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Two Republican presidential candidates hit with a warning from the Republican National Committee. The RNC says they could be violating debate rules. The Republican National Committee, or RNC, threatened to expel presidential hopefuls Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie from future primary debates. This is after the duo decided to hold the discussion on Fox News. The RNC debate rules say that candidates must agree they won't take part in any debate during the campaign that isn't sanctioned by the RNC. In response to the threat, Christie and Ramaswamy appeared on Fox News individually and didn't have any discussions. But let's be very clear, Vivek yeah. and I were in Washington ready to do it, and they threatened both of us that if we did, we're done, we're not going to be on any more debate stages. And so, given that choice, we, we decided to do ball. separate interviews. Yeah. Christie is a former governor of New Jersey and vocal critic of former Hi. President Hi. Trump. He commented on the RNC's threat, saying, less debate and less information to the voters is never a good thing. He also accused the RNC of carrying Trump's water. He said because Trump doesn't want any future debates. Ramaswamy also responded to the threat saying, the RNC called a code red on voters, hearing me spar with Chris Christie on Fox, but they're perfectly fine letting DeSantis do his own debate on Fox instead. Both parties are so corrupt, it's sick. The third GOP primary is scheduled for November 8th in Miami and will have stricter requirements. Participants must secure at least 4% support in the polls and have at least 70,000 unique donors. Presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis changing his campaign strategy. The Florida governor is moving resources and even staff to Iowa, making it a win-or-bust state. DeSantis is telling about one-third of his staff to relocate to Iowa. This comes as he's diverting more resources to the state amid a new infusion of cash. DeSantis badly trails Republican frontrunner Donald Trump in opinion polls in Iowa and elsewhere. Iowa is the state with the first Republican nominating contest, which will take place on January 15th. The governor aims to campaign in all of Iowa's 99 counties. Meanwhile, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is overtaking DeSantis in two states. A Winthrop University poll in South Carolina shows Haley leading over DeSantis by almost five points. In New Hampshire, a Suffolk University poll shows Haley leading by a strong nine points over DeSantis. However, former President Trump is still the clear frontrunner in both states. General Motors says the auto worker strike has already cost the company $200 million. Is there an end in sight for the historic work stoppage as it approaches its third week? We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for details. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you again. Yeah, always good to see you as well, Tiffany. 
Don, to begin, have the two sides made any strides toward a resolution in progress here? Yeah, well, Tiffany, uh, what I can say is this. Uh, Ford and the UAW have narrowed their differences on uh, pay increases. But, you know, with that said, I have to put an asterisk on this statement because uh, this sign of progress is according to uh, sources from Reuters and Associated Press citing unnamed people familiar with the situation. So we may or may not have to take this uh, with a grain of salt. But regardless, according to them, progress was actually reported at all three companies. You know, some with offers actually being exchanged. Another said there was more uh, movement in talks with Jeep makers Delantis compared to others. But, you know, regardless what they say, we won't actually have to wait very long to find out what's happening with negotiations uh, because uh, Union President Sean Fain will update members tomorrow on how it's going with bargaining. And General Motors has said the strike has costed $200 million. What has been the total cost of the strike so far? Yeah, that, it's been a lot. Uh, so, you know, General Motors, $200 million, But according to economic consulting firm Anderson Economic Group, total losses are reaching nearly $4 billion. And that, that's just for the first two weeks of the strike, and we're nearing a third week. So let me just break down for you what makes up that uh, nearly $4 billion. So we have uh, about over $300 million in wage losses, and uh, we have the Detroit 3 manufacturer losses, supplier losses, uh, dealer and customer losses, which amount to over a billion dollars respectively. And we just heard yesterday that Ford and GM are laying off another 900 people, you know, which could potentially add even more to the amount of wages lost. And on that last point, how many people have been laid off so far? Yeah, over 3,700 people have lost their jobs uh, so far due to layoffs at GM, uh, Ford, and Stellantis. And the reason why so many people have been laid off is because, according to Ford, uh, their production system is actually very interconnected. So. When one facility has reduced work activity, it will also reduce uh, activity at another facility downstream. Um, so the UAW strikes have knock-on effects, even for factories that are not directly targeted for a work stoppage. Um, now, of course, uh, that's what the companies are saying, but I have to mention what uh, Sean Fain has said as well. He's saying something completely different. He says that uh, the big three automakers actually don't have to lay off a single employee. That's what he's saying. He says uh, that they're simply trying to put pressure on the union to end the strike. But, you know, as for who's right in this situation, personally, I think uh, maybe both sides have some bit of merit to their arguments. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, as always, pleasure to be here. When we return, how President Biden's border wall decision could impact the nation and how Americans are being hurt now due to the border crisis. New York City says it can't house all of the illegal immigrants arriving in the city. Officials now pushing to suspend the city's controversial right to shelter law. Urban flooding is on the rise. What are the reasons cities are so vulnerable and what can you do to prepare? And Starbucks planning to close a few of its stores in San Francisco. How did the coffee chain explain the decision? Stay tuned for more here on NPD News after the break.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Today was day four of former President Donald Trump's New York financial fraud trial. Meanwhile, Trump has asked the judge to throw out another case against him, the election interference case in D.C. And his lawyers have asked a judge to postpone his classified documents trial until after next year's election. The White House calls for more support for Ukraine amid a deadly Russian airstrike. But the future of Ukraine aid has become more uncertain as the House seeks a new speaker. The Biden administration said it's planning to resume construction of the Trump-era border wall. The plans are to build the wall in Starr County in South Texas, a hotspot for illegal immigration. And looking closer into the border crisis, we interviewed retired General Robert Spaulding, an Epic Times contributor and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute focusing on national security. Let's watch that now. General Spaulding, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to be back. General, to begin, President Biden has reversed course. He's waived 26 federal laws to allow border wall construction in Texas. Do you think this will do much to quell the border crisis that we've been seeing, especially under Biden's tenure? Well, it certainly can't hurt. Um, I think the uh, he's facing dramatic pressure from many of the largest cities who themselves are facing pressure from uh, inbound uh, refugees or immigrants or illegal aliens, whatever you want to call them. I think the thing that um, that uh, hasn't been recognized uh, in addition to that, uh, that I think uh, it's aimed at is the fentanyl traffic. So we've had like 100,000 people a year die in the United States due to fentanyl. All of that originates in China and comes through the Southern border. So I don't think uh, actually having a wall will hurt. That being said, it takes more than the wall. It takes enforcement. It takes actual um, not having rules and laws where you uh, apprehend somebody and then just release them into our population. I think they need to be expelled immediately. Uh, I don't think this is wrong. I think other nations do it. And so I think hopefully, uh, in addition to building the wall, that we will you know, actually take action when, when people come here illegally. I think that's very important, important for our national security. And speaking of China and fentanyl, one demographic of people coming across that's been reported a lot on are military-aged aged Chinese men. Why do you think they're coming over in such large numbers now? Well, you know, that's the thing that really concerns me because there is an exit ban uh, in China, and it's not easy for a Chinese person to uh, get approval to leave the country. It's something that they have to, each person has to be approved. And so if there is an exit ban going on in China by the Chinese Communist Party, then uh, how are these people, you know, forget about the fact that they're coming through the U.S. southern border. How are they actually getting out of China? That's what I would like to know. And uh, if the Chinese Communist Party had the intent to infiltrate uh, our society through the southern border, then, you know, they would have a reason to let people out of China. And so this is the big question that I think the American people deserve an answer uh, to. We need to round some of these people up and question them. We certainly shouldn't just uh, assume they're here on um, some kind of refugee status or they're trying to flee the Chinese Communist Party. Some of them very, very well may be trying to do that. That being said, we need to actually understand, because uh, the Chinese Communist Party is an enemy, we need to understand what each and every one of them are doing. 
And again, they should not be released into our society. And on that note, some national security experts are actually saying our border crisis is being exploited by countries like China. Do you see that being the case here? Well, not just China. I mean, you have people coming literally from all over the world. I think this is the uh, the great secret um, that's no longer a secret. Everybody knows that if they come uh, to um, South America, they can come through the southern border. Now, they may have to endure some hardships, and it may be dangerous, but you know, to come to the United States is is often a dream of many people. And I think, you know, they're willing to take those risks. But more importantly, you know, some of these people actually could be criminals. Some of them could be terrorists. Some of them could be um, uh, drug traffickers or human traffickers. These are all things that, you know, come when you have a border that's not being protected. And I think that's the thing, you know, hopefully that the administration is responding to. It's their obligation the executive branch's obligation to defend the country from incursions in our border. And General, you posted about Elon Musk's visit down to the border recently, calling what's happening there, quote, an attack on our republic by our own federal government. Can you expand on what you mean by that? How is this an attack? Well, if you look at it from the aspect of an average citizen, you know, everything that they, um, that they uh, you know, get from the government in terms of what their taxes go to, you know, their taxes are being taken from them to support, you know, millions of people coming into the country. So in other words, their taxes aren't being taken for their own benefit or the benefit of their fellow citizens. It's being taken for people who don't belong in the country. And so, um, you know, in a sense, this is taxation without representation. So, very much like we declared independence from England because they were doing something, the king was doing something similar. Our own government is doing this to us. And I think it's imperative that the executive branch, again, enforces the laws of the country. It in, it basically takes care of border security. These are basic uh, responsibilities of the executive branch. And I think the American people are right to expect the executive branch to fulfill its duties under the Constitution. So it sounds like what you're saying is the American people are the ones suffering here. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. I mean, you look at it in New York City, where um, they are not only just crowding the streets, but they're also using tax money, you know, taxpayer money to house these um, these illegal immigrants. And it's it's a big problem for because that means that that's tax dollars that, that can't go to the needs of American citizens who live in New York, the residents, the actual citizens of the country who live there, you know, that is what they pay taxes for. They, they shouldn't be paying taxes for people that shouldn't be there. This is something that the federal government has done to the states. And so that's why I said it's, an, it's essentially an attack on a republic because it's an attack on our citizens. It deprives them, de deprives them of services that they would normally be rendered if their tax dollars were going to you know, support the things that they're, they're supposed to support for the American citizen. General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. New York City is also taking stronger action to tackle the illegal immigration crisis. The city is now trying to suspend its right to shelter law. This comes as the mayor is touring Latin America, warning people about current conditions in New York. NTD's Arian Pastar has the details. New York City is trying to suspend its right to shelter law. 
city attorneys filed this letter with the New York Supreme Court this week, saying the law's requirements are ill-suited to present circumstances and restrain the city at a time when flexibility to deal with the emergency is paramount. They're asking a justice to suspend portions of the law if two conditions are met. The mayor has declared a state of emergency and the number of single adults seeking shelter is at least 50% greater than before the state of emergency. Both conditions are currently being met. New York City's right to shelter law basically obligates the city to provide a bed to anyone who asks for one. The law was put in place 40 years ago, intended to help the homeless population. While New York City Mayor Eric Adams was campaigning to become mayor, he praised the law and how it can help immigrants. Now that's changed. And Adams isn't the only Democrat turning on the law. Last month, New York Governor Kathy Hochul was on CNN saying that the law is being abused. Never was it envisioned that this would be an unlimited, universal right or obligation on the city to have to house literally the entire world. And just this week, former President Bill Clinton said the governor is right in that the law should be changed. They come up here and we're supposed to shelter people who can't get work permits for six months. New York's motion to change the law comes as Adams is touring Latin America starting Wednesday. Just, just landed in uh, Mexico City. The mayor's goal is to inform people about the realities they'll face if they go to New York City, such as that housing and work are not guaranteed for everyone. On Thursday, Adams attended an event in Mexico City, warning that a large influx of adult male immigrants could have a potential impact on crime. And don't think it's going to impact shoplifting, a mass people that can be involved in, you know, a, a stealing or doing something that's antisocial behavior. This comes as up to 800 immigrants a day have been arriving in New York City. That's double the usual number. Adams is scheduled to travel to the capital cities of Ecuador and Colombia before visiting the dangerous Darien Gap that leads through the jungle and into Central America. Arian Pastar, NTD News. More from New York City. Urban flooding is on the rise and many cities are just not prepared, just as the Big Apple was not prepared for the paralyzing floods last week, which brought ankle-deep waters to some areas. NTD's Virginia Gibson explains the lack of preparation and what you should do in an urban flood. Urban floods are growing across America and many cities aren't ready for them. Streets essentially become rivers. Asphalt and concrete surfaces don't soak up water, so it flows downstream into homes, businesses, and basements. The infrastructure is often too outdated to deal with this. Drainage systems were built long ago and have insufficient capacity. They can't handle excessive amounts of rainfall. The biggest thing that you don't want to do in any flood situation, regardless of where you are, is get in the water. Stay out of the water completely. Like, don't wade through it, don't walk through it. Flood water is about the nastiest, um, you know, milkshake of every toxic substance known to man. Bill Fulton is the author of Survive and Thrive, How to Prepare for Any Disaster. He says this is especially the case in a city because of chemicals and sewage. Fulton warns that coming into contact with flood water could result in disease. Stay out of it. Get up high. So if you're in a first floor unit or, uh, you know, New York has a lot of basement units, uh, leave. Fulton believes it's unlikely a major city like New York will update its drainage systems. 
Doing so would require a lot of construction, shutting down businesses, and causing outrage. It would also be very expensive to update and to keep up to date, including making accommodations for new construction projects. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Over in California, more business closings announced for San Francisco. Starbucks will be shutting doors on seven locations. NTD's Jason Blair has more on this announcement. While some companies have cited crime and safety concerns, Starbucks has not named any specific reasons for its planned store closures in San Francisco. Most of the locations are downtown and in the financial district. All seven are set to close October 22nd. A Starbucks spokesperson told Cron4, quote, Each year as a standard course of business, we evaluate the store portfolio to determine where we can best meet our community and customers' needs. This includes opening new locations, identifying stores in need of investment or renovation, exploring locations where an alternative format is needed, and in some instances, re-evaluating our footprint. The coffee chain also opened three new stores over the past six months in the city and is currently renovating four. Recently, retail giant Target also announced three closures in the San Francisco area for October 21st, citing rampant theft. Earlier this year, Whole Foods, Nordstrom, Anthropology, Westfield and other companies closed locations in the city. NTD reached out to Starbucks for comment. Reporting in San Francisco, Jason Blair, NTD News. Coming up, has the NFL played up their Taylor Swift coverage a little too much? Swift's rumored boyfriend, NFL star Travis Kelsey, weighs in. And can private companies send a spacecraft to the moon? A Texas-based company is trying to achieve just that. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with more fallout from the Northwestern hazing investigation. That's right, Tiff. Northwestern is now being sued on all sides. The elite academic school already faces more than a dozen lawsuits relating to alleged hazing abuse in the athletic department, mainly the football program. Now the university is being sued by the former football coach himself, Pat Fitzgerald, for wrongful termination. Fitzgerald, who's named in some of the same lawsuits against the school, is seeking some $130 million in damages. The 48-year-old was the head football coach from 2006 through 2022 after being a standout player at the school in the mid-90s. He was initially suspended for two weeks back in early July after the school conducted an investigation into hazing allegations within his program. The report, which wasn't made publicly available, didn't find evidence that Fitzgerald knew of the allegations. However, just three days later, the university reversed course and fired Fitzgerald after the school newspaper ran an article detailing allegations of coerced sexual acts among the players. And in the NFL, is the league overdoing the Taylor Swift coverage just a little bit? Travis Kelsey says so, the four-time All-Pro tight end, who's rumored to be dating the pop sensation, commented on it on his New Heights with Jason and Travis Kelsey podcast this week. Swift has been shown extensively at each of the two past Chiefs games. 
Now, according to his brother Jason, who's a five-time All-Pro player himself, the Sunday night telecast between the Chiefs and Jets showed her no fewer than 17 times in her suite. Now, the result was the most watched Sunday show since the Super Bowl with an average audience of 27 million viewers. And speaking of which, for your viewing schedule tonight, the NFL's Thursday night football pits the Chicago Bears against the Washington Commanders. So no Taylor Swift, just plain old football. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. The moon may soon be open for business. A Texas-based firm hopes to make the first landing on the moon by a commercial spacecraft before the year ends. This could mean a SpaceX rocket could launch the first commercial lunar lander within weeks. So from the time we launch to the time we land is less than seven days. Once we're on the surface of the moon, we will operate as long as the sun is in the sky, which for the moon will be about 12 to 13 days. Unfortunately, once the sun goes down, it gets extremely cold at the moon and the vehicle systems will most likely freeze and that'll be the end of the first mission. It will not return. We're only beginning to understand the materials on the moon. And I think there's materials that are worth something, not only from a science and discovery standpoint, but maybe from a consumer goods standpoint. The Nova C probe is the brainchild of Texas firm Intuitive Machines. The company is now shipping it to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. A launch could happen as early as mid-November. The mission is part of a NASA project to make moon trips more efficient by letting private firms bid on delivering gear to the moon. According to the president of Intuitive Machines, the long-term goal is to turn the moon into a profitable destination for private enterprise. If successful, Nova C will make the first soft landing on the moon by a U.S. craft since the last Apollo mission in 1972. NASA's new Artemis program plans to land astronauts on the moon again by late 2025. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.